Good morning, and Happy New Year to you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 8. If you're with us over the holiday season, you know we took a four-week break from our series on the book of Acts to look at four songs from the Gospel of Luke to prepare our heart to celebrate the advent of Christ, but now we are returning to our series in the book of Acts. So we started that last fall, we made our way through the first seven chapters or so, and this morning we'll be in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 25. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that as we now turn our attention back to the book of Acts, that you would help us as a church to grow in our dependence upon you, to grow in our desire to spread the good news of Christ far and wide, and to grow mostly in our love for you. Father, it's our desire, as we just sang about, that all glory would be given to you. And so we pray as we turn our attention now to your word, that we would grow in our understanding of who you are, that we would grow in our understanding of what you've done, and that because of that, then we would long to bring glory to you. And so, Father, we just ask that as we open your word this morning, that you would speak loudly and clearly, that all glory would go to you, that we would leave here today with a greater appreciation for who you are and a more worshipful heart. Lord, please help us now as we turn to your word. Help us, help us to bring glory to you. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. So from 1978 to 2001, magician David Copperfield appeared annually on CBS for a television special that was simply known as The Magic of David Copperfield. The shows would sometimes involve close-up sleight-of-hand magic, but more times than not, they were known for their larger-than-life illusions. In one special, Copperfield seemingly walked straight through the Great Wall of China. In another, he floated over the Grand Canyon, and in still another, he dramatically escaped from the notorious prison Alcatraz. But perhaps his most famous illusion involved the Statue of Liberty. In a television special that aired on April 8th of 1983, Copperfield made the Statue of Liberty simply disappear. Now, the mechanics behind that trick have since been revealed, but at the time, the trick was truly mystifying, even for the live audience that was gathered around the Statue of Liberty that night. And it was a huge hit on television, too. It's estimated that more than 50 million people watched on live television as Copperfield made Lady Liberty vanish into thin air. And to Copperfield's credit, I guess if you want to say it that way, he certainly capitalized on the fame of that trick and others. 38 years later, he's still performing live shows in Las Vegas, about 515 a year. And he's estimated to have a net worth of around $1 billion, which is kind of crazy for a magician. But I suppose it's not all that surprising because there does seem to be something about a good magician and magic in general that seems to draw people in. Whether it be Harry Potter or the Chronicles of Narnia, the Tooth Fairy, or even good old Santa Claus... Magic has long appealed to the masses. So in light of that appeal, when an incredibly successful magician appears on the scene in Acts chapter 8, that's something that gets our attention. And by all accounts, the magician Simon, who's in Acts chapter 8, was extraordinarily gifted at his craft. We're told in Acts 8 that he captured the attention of all the people from the least to the greatest. And it appears that some even thought that Simon was a god, or perhaps sent by the gods which is something that not even David Copperfield would claim, at least that I know of. But here's what's interesting. While Simon the Magician may be the first thing that gets your attention when you read the passage that we're about to look at this morning, the more you study the passage, the more you realize that Simon and his magic are not as powerful as they may first seem. And for that matter, magic in general is probably overrated too. We may be intrigued by magic and curious as to how it works, but in Acts 8, it's clear. There is something far more powerful than even the most powerful magician in the world. And it's that other power that takes center stage in Acts chapter 8. 
And that other power is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the accompanying work of the Holy Spirit. At first glance, when you read this passage, you may think, oh, this is a passage about a magician. It's not. It's actually a passage about the power of the gospel and a cautionary tale, too, about the danger of counterfeit gospels. So that said, let's turn our attention then to Acts 8, verses 4 to 25. I'm going to ask you to stand if you're physically able. This has a simple way of reminding ourselves it's the word of God, and as such as do our reverence. So Acts 8, verses 4 to 25, the words should be on the screen here shortly. You can listen as I read, or you can follow along in your own Bibles. But the Word of God says this, beginning in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on him, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So in Acts 8, 4-25, the passage we just read, you have two parallel stories that are being told in alternating fashion. On the one hand, you have the story of the gospel powerfully advancing in Samaria. On the other hand, you have the story of the infamous magician Simon. These two stories are actually intertwined in some pretty powerful ways, and we can see that as we make our way through the text. So let's do that beginning in verses 4 through 8. Verse 4 says this, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there is much joy in that city. Now in verses 4 to 8, we see the gospel advancing in Samaria. Now the context leading up to that gospel movement is worth noting here. And since we haven't been in Acts for quite a while, we probably need to refresh ourselves as to where we are regarding the context. At the end of chapter 7, you may remember that Stephen was martyred because of his faith. And then at the beginning of chapter 8, widespread persecution broke out against the church. And as a result, believers were scattered throughout all Judea and into Samaria. 
And it's in that context that Philip ends up in Samaria where he preaches the good news of Christ to an unknown city in Samaria. We're not entirely for sure what city it is. It's some city in Samaria. Now, the fact that Philip is preaching in Samaria is noteworthy. The Samaritans were a racially mixed group of people, partly of Jewish ancestry, partly of Gentile ancestry. They were despised by the Jewish people for both racial reasons and theological ones. The Jewish people viewed the Samaritans as both half-breeds and heretics. And the hostility between the Jewish people and the Samaritans went back roughly a thousand years. So for a Jewish person to preach to the Samaritans was not just surprising, it was even scandalous. This is why the disciples were so surprised when Jesus interacted with the Samaritan woman at the well. And it's why Philip's actions here in Acts 8 are so noteworthy too. He's not just preaching to a group of people that don't look like him or come from a different background. He's preaching to a group of people that were despised and hated and rejected as heretics. So I think we read a passage like this one and we think nothing of Philip's actions. But Philip preaching to the Samaritans is a really big deal. It'd be like one of us going into the heart of Afghanistan and sharing about Christ with the terrorists who'd killed the American soldiers. Or it'd be like one of us going into the prison system and sharing about Christ with the most vile and disgusting criminal in the system. Or it would be like going to the house of the person who ruined your life and sharing Christ with them out of genuine concern and care. Philip's actions took great courage and boldness. He is preaching to the enemy. And yet God used Philip in a mighty way. As we're told in verses 6 to 8, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said. They also took note of the miraculous signs that were accompanying Philip's preaching. Demons were fleeing and the lame were being healed. And as a result, there was much joy in the city. God was working in Samaria through the bold preaching of Philip. And that theme then continues into verses 9 through 13. But it's also in verses 9 to 13 that we're introduced to this character named Simon, a magician. And it's there that the story of Simon begins to intertwine with the gospel's advancement in Samaria. We see Simon's story come into focus in verses 9 to 11. Verse 9. But there's a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. Now it's obvious that Simon the magician was very good at what he did. Luke goes out of his way in verses 9 to 11 to make this known. In verse 9, Luke tells us that Simon had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. In verse 10, he tells us that the people had paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. They even referred to him as the power of God that is great. Now, it's a little unclear if that's a title that means they ascribed to him deity or if they just thought he was sent by a god. But either way, they saw Simon as powerful and they were very impressed by his magic. As Luke summarizes the situation in verse 11, they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But in verses 12 to 13, the tension shifts away from Simon and his magic back to the preaching of the good news of Christ in Samaria and the advancing of the gospel in Samaria. Verses 12 and 13, we see this. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
So while Simon's magic may have captivated the people of Samaria from the least to the greatest, the preaching of the gospel actually shifts their attention. Instead of being amazed now by this great magician, they're instead amazed by the good news that Christ died on the cross for their sins. And many of them, both men and women, believe and are baptized. Even Simon the magician himself is reported to have come to faith too. Now whether Simon's conversion was genuine is an ongoing question in this passage. There are some things in this passage that make you think that Simon was genuinely a believer. In fact, these verses would probably be the primary thing that would make you think that. But there are some major red flags with Simon's faith, and those will become more clear as we progress in the passage. But the larger point here, verses 12 and 13, is this, that God was doing a great work in Samaria, and the gospel was advancing. And this point is again confirmed in verses 14 to 17. Verse 14, now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For yet he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now admittedly, verses 14 to 17 presents us with a bit of a theological conundrum here. Throughout the New Testament, it's generally taught that those who believe in Jesus Christ immediately receive the Holy Spirit upon turning to Christ in saving faith. Peter himself seems to have taught that very thing in Acts 2, verses 38 and 39. And Paul consistently taught this as well. You believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. So the question then is this. If the Samaritans believed and had been baptized, why had they not yet received the Holy Spirit? What is going on here? Now I think the answer to that question is that God is doing something unique precisely because the gospel has crossed over an important boundary for the first time. A new region or a new people group has accepted the gospel, in this case of the Samaritans, and God withholds the sending of the Spirit and thus breaks from his normal pattern in order that he might clearly demonstrate to both the Jewish people, the Jewish believers, and the Samaritan believers, they are part of one body. And I think that's the significance of the Holy Spirit not being given until the apostles show up. Had the Holy Spirit fallen on the Samaritans immediately after they turned to Christ in saving faith, it's entirely possible the Samaritans might have decided they wanted nothing to do with the Jewish Christians. Or it's quite possible that the Jewish Christians would have dismissed the work in Samaria as being a fraudulent work. But by sending the apostles and letting the apostles lay their hands on the Samaritans as they received the Holy Spirit, God was communicating to both the apostles and thus the Jewish Christians, and the Samaritans, they are part of one body. So to be clear, I don't think what happens here in Acts 8 is normal. I don't think this is the normal pattern. Typically, when a person believes, they immediately receive the Holy Spirit. But here, because of the unique circumstances of the gospel crossing over from Jerusalem to Samaria, God withholds the Spirit to protect the unity of the church. He'll do this again in Acts when the gospel crosses over to another barrier. I think this is a unique situation. When the apostles show up, the Holy Spirit falls, and this confirms that the work in Samaria was indeed a work of God, and it also confirms that the Samaritans and the Jewish Christians were a part of the same body. And this giving of the Spirit is part of the larger story that's taking place here in Acts 8, that the gospel is advancing in Samaria. Verse 25 will continue that same story by noting that the gospel will be preached in many other villages in Samaria as well. But it's the other part of the story that now comes back into focus in verses 18 to 24. And that other part of the story is related to Simon the magician. So let's read again, verses 18 to 24. 
Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So again, the story of the gospel spreading in Samaria and the story of Simon the magician are being intertwined here in this passage. And in the case of verses 18 to 24, Simon sees the Holy Spirit being distributed as the apostles lay hands on the Samaritan believers, and he wants the ability to do the same thing. He wants to be able to distribute the Holy Spirit himself. He even goes so far as to offer money in order to have that power, which needless to say is a serious misunderstanding of the way the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit is not a gift of the apostles, it's a gift of God, and God is the one who gives the gifts, not the apostles, and certainly not something that you could buy with money. Needless to say, Peter does not respond well to Simon's request. The language that Peter uses in verses 20 to 23 is harsh, particularly in the original Greek. For example, the basic gist of what he says in verse 20 is this, may destruction take your money with you. Now we could say that in a colorful way, but what he's really saying is this, Buddy, you are on your way to destruction. And if you're headed there, you might as well take your money with you. And then in verses 21 through 23, he accuses Simon of having a heart that's not right before God, of having evil intent before God, and of Simon being stuck in the bond of sin and the gall of bitterness. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds bad. Some pretty serious accusations are being thrown around here. In verse 22, he pleads with Simon, though, to repent that his wickedness might be forgiven. And in verse 24, Simon does ask Peter to pray for him that none of the terrible things that Peter just mentioned would happen to him. But as many have pointed out, Simon doesn't repent himself. Rather than praying to God himself as Peter instructed him to do, he instead asked Peter to pray for him. And in that, there seems to be something troubling. Over the years then, many have speculated, and this brings us back to the question we asked earlier, was Simon a genuine believer or not? On the positive side of the ledger, verse 13 plainly tells us that Simon believed and was baptized. But on the negative side of the ledger, his longing to buy the impartation of the Holy Spirit suggests a serious misunderstanding of the gospel and a serious misunderstanding of the way the Holy Spirit works. As Peter emphatically points out, it suggests that Simon's heart was not right before God and he still had wrong motives. Even Simon's lukewarm attempt at repentance in verse 24 is troubling too. Furthermore, church tradition is certainly not on the side of Simon being a genuine believer. According to later church tradition, Simon would become one of the arch enemies of the early church and one of the leading founders of a Gnostic sect. One of the, one of the late church fathers, Irenaeus, would even refer to Simon the magician as, quote, the father of all heretics. Now for his part, Luke, who's the author of Acts, leaves the question open-ended in this passage. Luke doesn't necessarily tip his hand either way as to whether Simon's conversion was genuine or not. But I think what we can say with great certainty is this. Simon is being presented in this passage as a negative example of a warning to us of what not to do. Luke wants us to be encouraged in this passage, no doubt, by the advancing of the gospel in Samaria. But he also wants us to consider the example of Simon the magician and be warned. 
And that's why I think he intertwines the two stories in Acts 8, 4-25. He's trying to both encourage us, but also warn us. And I think we would do well to consider both the encouragements of this passage and the warning as well. And the rest of our time together this morning, that's what I want us to do. I want us to start by looking at the two things I think are encouraging in this passage, but then I also want us to see the warning. So again, two encouragements here. The first is simply this. Encouragement number one, the good news of the gospel is good news for all people everywhere. It's good news for all people everywhere. As we talked about earlier, for Philip to preach the gospel in Samaria was enormously significant. The Jewish people and the Samaritans hated one another. And they were at odds with one another for both racial reasons and theological ones. So for Philip to share the good news with the Samaritans, and for the Samaritans to receive that good news, is a huge turning point in the book of Acts, and it's a huge turning point in the history of the church. It's an indication that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not just good news for Israelites, but good news for all people, regardless of their race or their ethnicity or their culture. And to be sure, this was Jesus' expectation that the gospel would go across those boundaries. In Matthew 28, the famous Great Commission section, Jesus commands his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. The word that is used there is ethne, meaning all peoples, all people groups. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his disciples that when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they will receive power and they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now what's interesting in the context of the book of Acts is the disciples don't seem to take that command too seriously until the persecution of the church forces them to do so. It's only when the church is spread out because of persecution that Philip then takes the gospel to the Samaritans as Jesus had commanded them to do all the way back in Acts 1.8. And in that, I think there's a reminder to us, God will do whatever it takes to accomplish his plan. In this case, he uses persecution as a means for the disciples to finally fulfill their commission to take the gospel across these racial and ethnic and cultural barriers. And make no mistake about it, the church today is still called to do the very same thing, to take the gospel across cultural and racial and ethnic boundaries. From Genesis 12 on, it's clear when God makes his promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through him, from that point on, it's clear in both the Old and New Testament that the good news of the kingdom is good news for all people. Now, to be sure, that message is a bit more obscured in the Old Testament, but it's there. And in New Testament passages like Matthew 28 and Acts 1-8, it's crystal clear the church is called to take the good news across racial and ethnic boundaries. The message of the gospel, that God is holy and we have sinned against him, and thus we are rightly subject to his righteous wrath. But Jesus, who is God, the second person of the Trinity, one God in three persons, the Son took on flesh, which we just celebrated at Christmas. Then he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the dead and conquered death. And if anyone would turn to him in saving faith, they can be rescued from their sin. That message, the gospel message, is good news for all people everywhere, regardless of their race, their ethnicity, or their background. The first time I went on a mission trip to Taiwan, I had the privilege of watching a baptism service. It was at a public swimming pool in Taiwan, and it was mass chaos. There were people everywhere, and 99% of them had zero clue what was going on with the baptism service. We just had our own little corner. Nevertheless, a baptism took place, and it was powerful. 
And while I don't remember everyone who was baptized that day, I do remember a young man named Frank. That's not his Taiwanese name, obviously, being baptized. And as Frank and the others were baptized, it was a visual reminder to me that gospel is not just for Americans. The good news of Jesus Christ is not just good news for American ears, it's good news for all ears. Because all of us, regardless of our race or our ethnicity or our background, have fallen short of the glory of God and we need rescued from our sin. And it's the church's responsibility to take the initiative to cross racial and ethnic and cultural and geographic lines with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So my question for you this morning and for us then is simply this, are we doing that? Are we doing that? Listen, I know that racial tension is high in our country right now. And I know that there are all kinds of discussions taking place about various topics related to race, including the types of theories that we should or shouldn't teach in our schools. And there's a place for those discussions. But let us never forget that the church is called to take the gospel across racial and ethnic and geographic lines. That is not a political statement. That is a biblical one. Clearly, Jesus had an expectation that we would share the good news across boundaries. And in the first century, something you need to understand is this. Racial tension was high then, too. As an example, in Luke 9, when a Samaritan village rejects Jesus, James and John ask Jesus, should we call down fire on this village? Now, setting aside the hubris of James and John thinking they could call down fire, the fact that they question, should we call down fire on these Samaritans, is a pretty good sign there is some serious disdain for the Samaritans. There was some serious racial tension there. But note, it's that same John who wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans who here in Acts 8 lays his hands on the Samaritans that they might receive the Holy Spirit. That's an incredibly powerful picture of what the gospel of Jesus Christ does as we're transformed by the good news of the gospel and by the fact that Christ has rescued us from our sin. And as the Holy Spirit does a work in us, then our desire for others to know Christ will grow, including our desire for others to know Christ who don't look like us or don't come from the same background that we do. One of the reasons that we as elders were excited about using part of our Harvest Festival funds this year to support a Spanish-speaking church plant in Lexington, Nebraska, is because we want the gospel to cross racial and ethnic boundaries here in Nebraska. And for that same reason, we want to keep asking this question, what can we do in this community to help all people hear the good news of Christ? One of my sons recently had a vocal music concert here at the high school. And one of the things that struck me at that concert was the diversity that was present. Now, to be sure, it wasn't just racial diversity. There was also great socioeconomic diversity and other diversity, too. But there was racial diversity. And as followers of Christ, we should want all races present here in Fremont to hear the good news about Jesus. Because hear this, every person in Fremont is first and foremost an image bearer. Race is not our defining characteristic, despite what you may be hearing in the media. Now, being made in the image of God, this is our defining characteristic. And all of us should want our fellow image bearers to hear the good news about Jesus, regardless of the color of their skin or the language that they speak or the background that they came from. Whether Samaritan or Taiwanese or anywhere in between, the gospel is good news for all people everywhere. And that includes us and the people around us too. That's one of the things that's encouraging about this passage, that the gospel is good news for all lost sinners. But secondly, the second encouragement we see in this passage is this, the power of the gospel is unmatched and it is unstoppable. 
Now, the unmatched and unstoppable nature of the gospel is seen in a couple of ways in this passage. First, the power of the gospel is seen, and that persecution cannot stop the spread of the gospel. The passage both begins and ends, verse 4, verse 25, with the gospel spreading throughout various regions of Samaria. But remember the context of the gospel spreading. In fact, let's go back here to the beginning of Acts chapter 8, verse 1. This is where we read about Stephen dying, and then in verse 1 we read this, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, notice what happened. There's persecution, they were spread. Verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So as we mentioned earlier, the disciples were not yet obeying the command to take the gospel to Samaria and the ends of the earth, but the persecution of the church causes them to do so. The very thing that was meant to put an end to the church, persecution, is the very thing that causes the message to spread. And in that we are reminded the message of the gospel cannot be stopped. As Paul says it in 2 Timothy 2, the word of God is not bound. Now to be sure, sometimes his messengers will be bound. When Paul said what he did in 2 Timothy 2 about the word of God not being bound, he himself was in prison. And even here in Acts 7 and 8, the gospel may be unstoppable, but Stephen was just killed. So listen, there's no guarantee that as followers of Christ, as we hold out the message, our life will be easy. There's no guarantee that we won't face persecution. In fact, it's the opposite. There's pretty much a guarantee we will. But ultimately, hear this, the message of the gospel cannot and will not be stopped. Its power is unmatched. And we see that in the second way in this passage. Given the way that Simon's magic is described in verses 9 to 11, it's pretty clear his magic was a big deal. Like the magicians of Pharaoh, it seems likely Simon was probably channeling some dark spiritual forces here to amaze the crowds and garner their adoration. To be clear, I don't think he was just doing card tricks. I think he was doing some seriously dark stuff. But when the good news of the gospel comes on the scene, it's clear that Simon's magic is no match for the power of the gospel. Instead of paying attention to the magic, the people instead start paying attention to the message. And the Holy Spirit falls on the people of Samaria. And then Simon's desperation to try to figure out, how can I control the Holy Spirit? It's an indication that Simon's magic was no match for the Holy Spirit either. And in that, we are again reminded that the power of the gospel is unmatched and it's unstoppable. And given our current cultural climate, that's probably something we need to remember. Listen, I know the hostility towards Christians seems to be growing in the United States, and it certainly feels like the next decade could be a lot harder for us. As I've said before, I personally think that more persecution and difficulty are on their way and on their way soon. In particular, if we hold to what the Bible teaches about marriage, sexuality, gender, I suspect the difficulty will find us sooner rather than later. But what you need to remember is that the message of the gospel is not going to be thwarted. It's unstoppable and unmatched in its power. Now, that doesn't mean everyone will believe in fact, far from it. But it does mean that the message itself, that the Word of God will never be quenched. The Word of God cannot be chained. And given that reality, we don't need to lose our minds or curl up in the fetal position at the prospect of persecution. Instead, we need to remember, the Word is not bound. We may be bound. We may be chained. That's possible. But the Word of God will not be stopped. Its power is unstoppable. The message is unmatched. And I think that's one of the great encouragements of this passage. So as we see the gospel advancing in Samaria, 
as we learn about Simon the Magician, we're reminded of two really encouraging things. The gospel is good news for all people everywhere, and the power of the gospel is unmatched and unstoppable. But as I mentioned earlier, I do think there's a warning implicit in this passage too, and the warning is this, counterfeit gospels abound. The word gospel simply means good news. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and he rose three days later, that if we turn to him in saving faith, we can be rescued. But while that may be the good news, the fact of the matter is that all kinds of alternatives to that message are lifted up by people in our culture as being good news too. Counterfeit gospels, if you will. And I think Simon's story is included in this passage, at least in part, to warn us about the presence of these counterfeit gospels. Again, whatever you may think about the sincerity of Simon's faith, there's no doubt that Luke in this passage wants us to see Simon as a negative example. Simon was putting his hope in the wrong things. Initially, he was putting his hope in magic, which is no substitute for the power of the gospel. By the way, just in case you think that that's irrelevant to our current cultural climate, you should know this. A high school student told me here, There are many high school students he knows here in Fremont that are dabbling in dark spiritual things like crystals and Ouija boards and other New Age beliefs. In other words, the counterfeit gospel of magic is still alive and well. And so we need to be aware that this is a real danger. But Simon's bigger issue in this passage is not that he was pursuing magic so much as he was pursuing self. That was his bigger issue. The counterfeit gospel that he was really chasing after was the gospel of self-power. In fact, look at the way he's described in verse 9 here. Verse 9 says this. But there's a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. I think that's the counterfeit gospel that Simon was really believing in. It wasn't that magic was his primary vehicle. It was that the gospel of self. He was somebody great. This is why Simon does what he does in verses 18 and 19. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon wanted the ability to distribute the Holy Spirit because he wanted the power. He wanted to be able to draw attention to himself. He wanted others to see him as great. And he was willing to use his resources, his money, to try and accomplish that goal. But at the end of the day, his real goal was to draw attention to self. And that's a counterfeit gospel I think we can all relate to. Within each of us, I think there's a desire to be known or respected or liked by others. This is why people chase after fame, accomplishments, and power. Because there's part of us that's convinced if we find those things, we will find satisfaction and joy but it's a lie. It's a counterfeit gospel. No matter how much you accomplish in life, no matter how many things you do, or how many people you impress, you will not find true and lasting satisfaction until you are fully and completely resting in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why so many celebrities are so miserable? Have you ever wondered why athletes win championships, but they're still not satisfied? Have you ever wondered why you, still, why you still feel empty, even when you've accomplished so much and you've done so many things? It's because fame and accomplishments and power and achievements are counterfeit gospels. They promise so much, but they deliver so little. Listen, some of you in here have been chasing the American dream for a really long time. 
Others of you are just now hopping on that train. You've convinced yourself, if I just accomplish enough or make enough money or impress others enough or if I'm popular enough, then I will be satisfied. But it's not true, at least not in a lasting sense. To roughly paraphrase Peter here from Acts 8, if you think that you can buy happiness or you can earn it through your accomplishments, you will perish with your money and with your accomplishments. As the story of Simon the Magician reminds us, the path of joy is not found in living for self. It's found in living for Christ. And so if you're chasing after a counterfeit gospel, whether it be the gospel of prosperity or the gospel of achievement or the gospel of self the gospel of magic or the gospel of family or whatever it is, let me encourage you this morning to repent of your pursuit of that counterfeit gospel and instead pursue the real thing. And actually, I think that's the great function of this passage. At first glance, it may seem like this is a passage about a magician, an opportunity for us to learn about the David Copperfield of first century magic. But in reality, this passage is not about Simon at all. It's a passage about the danger of pursuing counterfeit gospels. But more than that, it's a passage about the true gospel and its unmatched and unstoppable power. It's about the good news of Christ that is for all people everywhere. So by all means, when you read this passage, I think it's okay to be intrigued by this mysterious magician. But don't forget the point of Acts 8. Regardless of who you are, satisfaction and life and hope and joy are only found in one place. They're found in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage as it again reminds us of the hope that we have in Jesus. It reminds us that there's danger because there's counterfeit gospels everywhere. I pray this morning that there's some who've been looking to these counterfeit gospels for a long time. I pray that they would see the bankruptcy of what they're pursuing. Instead, they would see their life to be found in Christ. For all of us, there's a temptation to pursue counterfeit gospels even if we know the true gospel. And so may Simon's life be a warning to us here, that we don't want to go down that road, but instead we want to be satisfied in Christ alone. And so as we start a new year, it's our prayer this morning, Lord, that you would help us to see that Christ alone satisfies. Help us to live for Jesus. Help us to set aside all counterfeit gospels. Instead, help us with all of our might and all of our energy to pursue you, knowing that satisfaction is found in you alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.